0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the wind-up. Legends never die.
1: hit. the right. going be it. Way back
0: there. Oh! Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man
1: on the face, on the face. of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years.
0: It is 9 46 p.m.
1: with the men who saw and made that history. Andy into his
0: wind up. Here's the pitch.
1: Many of whom are no longer with us.
0: Swing out and this the perfect game.
1: Stories from the 1930s. Ball to the 21st century. At-
0: This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch?
1: Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode 10. First, I want to thank everybody who's found us, and certainly any of you who spread the word a little bit to grow our world. The only way it gets a little bit bigger is if you guys do a little bit of that work. So I greatly appreciate you spreading the word to baseball fans as far and wide as possible. Let's talk about this week. Edward Charles Ford, Slick, the chairman of the board, Whitey. If you have listened to any of the previous nine episodes, you know that this podcast is not built upon numbers. It's about stories, where players came from, how they made their way to their first major league appearance, the people they met, played with, against, and of course the wins and the losses, and first-person lookbacks years after they did their work and reflections of a baseball life. The goal has always been singular, to make these men comfortable enough to sit back in their chair and open up, separate some fact from fiction, or better yet, Tell a story they haven't thought about in years or one that is seeing the light of day for the first time. Mr. Ford did not disappoint on any level. I've had the pleasure to catch up with him a number of times over the years. A quick phone call just to say hello and ask how he is doing. And I always hope against hope that he makes his way to Cooperstown in July as the elder statesman of the game's incredible past. So before we get to Whitey, another Hall of Famer in this series, another one-team Hall of Famer at that, allow me a minute to lay out his greatness. Fifty-four years after he threw his last pitch in an October game, he still holds the record for most wins ever in World Series history. That number is 10. His 236 wins are still the most in franchise history, and this is the Yankees we're talking about. His 690 winning percentage is still the highest of any pitcher in Major League history with over 300 decisions. His 275 lifetime ERA is second only to Clayton Kershaw's 244 from all starting pitchers who started their careers after 1920. By the way, his World Series ERA is actually lower than his regular season number. It's 2.71. He's the only pitcher in World Series history to start game one in four straight World Series appearances. And he did it twice. Think about that. Handed the ball to start World Series eight times. Oh, and the year he didn't? Well, that would be 1960, the year the Yankees lost to the Pittsburgh Pirates and Bill Mazeroski. And all he did was throw two complete game shutouts in game three and six. The decision to bypass Whitey in game one cost Casey his job. And according to everyone I've ever spoken to who played for the Yankees and some other players I've asked about it, it is singularly the dumbest move any of them have ever seen. With all due respect to all of those men, I've seen something dumber. It was the 33% of Hall of Fame voters who decided in 1973 that Whitey Ford wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. Oh, and the 22% who the next year still didn't believe he was worthy in the 1974 vote, the one that just barely got him in. He saw Mickey cry. He talks about throwing to both Yogi and Elston for all those years. We don't get into it, but think about this. He has in his possession the Phil Lynch harmonica. Yogi thought it was in his museum in Montclair, New Jersey. Now, again, some of you might not know the story, but I promise you, it's worth it. Google it. He played half a season with his boyhood idol, Joe DiMaggio. After the conversation is done, you'll hear an incredible Reggie Jackson story from the mouth of Whitey Ford. It's all here. And quickly, let me go back to two previous episodes. Episode 1 with Stam Usual, we spoke of him being signed as a pitcher and how an arm injury turned him into Stam Usual, one of the greatest hitters of all time. Whitey will tell the story of his Yankee tryout and how that day started him on the road to becoming a Hall of Fame pitcher, Whitey Ford. And in Episode 2 with Phil Rizzuto, I told the story of how long it took to get Phil to come on. He eventually said yes because this man, Whitey Ford, enjoyed our time together enough to tell Phil, do the thing with the Italian guy in Atlanta. You'll enjoy it. And if in summation... You need to know who Whitey Ford was, is. My father was a diehard Brooklyn Dodger fan and did not like the Yankees one bit, but he loved Whitey Ford. Said if there was one guy who could have changed the fate of the Dodgers' postseason history, it was the five foot 175-pound lefty who could beat you with his arm, but more importantly, with his tenacity. Here you go. The chairman of the board, Whitey Ford.
0: When Mick and I played together, we were known to have a beer or two on special occasions. Like after every game. It's too bad Light beer from Miller wasn't around then. Yeah, it's less filling because Light actually has one-third less calories than their regular beer. And it really tastes great. Whitey, if we'd had a great tasting beer that was less filling in the old days, can you imagine where we'd be now? Yeah! The beer drink is Hall of Fame. The big news right now is that Whitey Ford of the New York Yankees has set a World Series pitching record by pitching 30 consecutive Hall of things. He broke Babe Ruth's record as Babe Ruth had pitched 29 and in two-thirds innings. Mickey's in center field calling the pitches to Yogi. Now for seven innings, I'm nothing, nothing with somebody, not knowing that Mickey Mantle's given him the science. In the eighth inning, <laughs> Mickey, we got nervous now, nothing, nothing. He says, "Okay, Yogi, I got you this for it. You're there on your own now." <laughs> we just lost four straight in Chicago, and got on the bus, and Yogi was the manager, 64, and uh, Phil Mincy just got the moniker, and he's back in the back of the bus plane, Mary had a little lamb or something, and Yogi hollered back, throw that goddamn thing away and and Phil didn't hear him. And Phil says to Mickey, What, what did he say? And Mickey says, He says, Play louder. <laughs> <laughs> he played louder, and school went back and smacked it out of his
1: mouth. Stop Joining me on Legends of the Game, a gentleman, well, a great honor and a pleasure to speak to him. I certainly know a lot of transplants from the New York area are going to be happy to hear. Mr. Whitey Ford joins us this evening. Hall of Famer Whitey Ford. Mr. Ford, how are you today?
2: Wonderful. Thank you, Christopher having me on your show.
1: Well, I appreciate your time today. Um the the pride of Astoria, Queens, I believe, correct? That's right. I grew I was born
2: in New York City, and when I was a young 5 or 6 years old, we moved over to uh, Queens Astor- 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 I grew up in Astoria, Long Island, yes.
1: And one of the things I always ask for gentlemen, uh, baseball in New York City at that time, three teams, who did you find yourself rooting for as a young boy?
2: Always the Yankees. <laughs> boy, it worked out pretty well then, didn't it? It, it sure did. The yeah, I uh, I guess I think I was ten or eleven years old my first year, in, uh I, I think it was 1938. So I got a chance to, uh, you know, see Lou Gehrig play and uh, well, DiMaggio. But later on, I got to play with him. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was quite a thrill, and there was a lot of arguments in the neighborhood about <laughs> who was the best team.
1: Did you have some guys around the block who uh, who found themselves being Giant fans and Dodger fans? And oh,
2: absolutely. Every it seemed every Friday night, you know, we'd hang out on the corner, and there would be a uh, They'd be arguing who was the best uh, center fielder. Was it Pete Rees with the Dodgers or Terry Moore with the Giants or Joe DiMaggio with the Yankees? And each night it was a different argument.
1: Why do you think you gravitated towards the Yankees?
2: I guess probably just because my, uh, my father and uncles uh, used to take me there once in a while when oh. I was young, and, and uh, probably Joe DiMaggio. He was my first uh, baseball hero.
1: Did you think... Well, let me ask you: At what age did you think the possibility of, if not at Yankee Stadium, the idea of putting on a major league uniform? When did that pop into your head?
2: Uh, about uh, after I was in the big league, in the minor leagues, about three years. Mm-hmm. My first two years in the minor leagues, you, you just got, I have to remember, I was about five foot nine and weighed about 150 pounds, and, and didn't <laughs> throw very hard. But then, as uh, when I got to be about 20, 20 years old, I was in. Uh, Uh, Class A ball in uh, Binghamton in the Eastern League and I started throwing a little harder my curveball got a little better and my control was always good but uh, that was about the 19... 49 season that was about the first time i really thought i had a chance to make it to the big
1: leagues now i must ask how close did it come to you actually not being a yankee i understand there was at least a little bit of a bidding war going on for your services
2: yeah it really didn't mean anything no i was going to sign with the yankees <laughs> regardless uh they started at bidding v- at like three or four thousand dollars the giants and then the red sox and the yankees and Finally, the Yankees said to me, look, we're going to give you $1,000 more than your highest offers, which was $7,000. They were going to give me $7,000, mm-hmm. and I said, that's fine. and I signed the contract,
1: and that was it. How d- Did you ever think back how things would have been different if you hadn't had an allegiance to the Yankees, and maybe the Giants or the Red Sox was the way you went?
2: Yeah, I guess I I wouldn't have had the chance of being in you know, so many World mm-hmm. Series and play with so many great players, uh, but... Uh, Yeah, I've thought about it often. I said, How would I have been able to pitch up in Fenway Park with that short fence? But later on, I found out I could have, you know, I've been all right there, too. Yeah,
1: but you could have actually helped break the curse of the Bambino at some point, perhaps. You and Ted Williams might have actually gotten that World Series ring up in Boston. Mm,
2: Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) We, you know, we came close. I wasn't with the team in 49, but Mm -hmm. it went right down to the last day of the season. Uh, The Yankees had to win the last two games of the season against the Red Sox to win the pennant. But, uh, outside. We had a lot of, uh, you know, close battles with them and uh, a lot of uh, it was, it was you know, the Red Sox-Yankee uh, uh, games were probably the most exciting to the fans.
1: Now, a lot of things people might not know is obviously you played high school baseball, but you also played, did you play for the 34th Avenue Boys Club as well?
2: Yes, in high school, I didn't pitch it. I pitched oh, my senior year, I just pitched a couple of innings and uh, I really, you know, I still wanted to be a first baseman and i and which I played older in high school. And I went to uh, a tryout at the Yankee Stadium, and they saw how I hit, so they suggested that I try <laughs> pitching. And uh, the 34th Avenue boys, which you just mentioned, was our local Sandlot team. So when I got out of high school, I played with them. And one of our pitchers got hurt, and I started pitching. And, uh, well, our team ended up uh, winning the New York City uh, Sandlot championship. I think we were, believe it or not, 36-0. and <laughs> so Jeez. Uh, I got a lot of experience pitching then, and my final game was uh, for the championship, and we played at the old Polo Grounds where the Giants played, and uh, we won one nothing in 11 innings, so the scouts were you know, a little bit impressed with me anyhow.
1: Well, I'd imagine that was the beginning of the let him pitch in the big game theory that uh, certainly followed you. Casey Stengel really enjoyed. I mean, I've read a lot of things about you and Mickey and Billy, and everybody's talked about that, that trio of guys and the way you played, but... If if it wasn't Casey Stengel, do you think you guys would have had the success you had, and do you think it would have been as fun for you?
2: Oh yeah, I think. I mean, Casey was a great manager, but we we had some great ball mm-hmm. players, and I'll tell you what Casey did but was very smart. He surrounded himself with the uh, three of the best coaches that any team could have. We had uh, Frank Crossetti coaching third, but he also worked with the the infielders on their fielding. He had Bill Dickey coaching first, who you know worked with the hitting. He helped Yogi become a good catcher. And then Jim Turner, our pitching coach, was just great. So, they more or less uh, handled the team. You know, Casey—they'd pick the players who were going to play. But Mm -hmm. you know, Casey was the one. Somebody was going to steal, he'd give the sign for that or bunting and things like that. And he—and he also got along very well with the press.
1: And he needed the personality he had to probably handle some of the things that you guys were up to, correct? Exactly. Yes, he did. (laughs) And what does whiskey slick mean?
2: Um i'm not really sure how it ever came about but um casey said something to that effect that we were whiskey slick and uh M- mickey for some reason i only thought that uh you know w- we uh we drank a little bit <laughs> which, which was right but we picked our spots and mm-hmm. uh, it was a little uh overrated they you know god mickey never would have been played more games than anybody in the history of the yankees if uh all the stories you right. read about him were true about being out at night and the same with myself and, or Billy Martin but I think Casey gave you know gave came up with that expression whiskey whiskey slick and uh, I'm not really sure what it meant
1: well it's one of the great nicknames I mean the chairman of the board is fantastic uh, but slick is also
2: well Mickey called me slick right till it, you know till we, we lost him but uh, and uh, quite a few guys call me that now and especially you know ex-yankees
1: <laughs> mr ford do you remember the first time you put on a yankee uniform in the big league
2: yes very well i um i was in kansas city in 1950 and i got it we'd just taken a long train ride from minneapolis to kansas city to start a homestay and i was awoken about 5:30 in the morning by park carroll our general manager and said the yankees just called and want you to get to boston as soon as possible and I didn't go to you know I got right up and they they finally got me on a plane and I flew to uh, actually to New York and then took a train up to Boston and um, that was my first day I think it was like July first nineteen fifty and my first game wasn't a very I I went in the bullpen I guess they wanted me to get a few winnings and uh, the very first game Tommy Byrne that I was with Tommy Byrne had started and after about four innings we were losing about eight to nothing and. They just put me in to get a little experience, and uh, the, the Red Sox just banged me all over the ballpark. I think the score ended up being like 17-4 to 4 or something like that. And what had happened uh, was the first base coach for the Red Sox knew every pitch I was throwing after I threw about a half a dozen <laughs> pitches. And Tommy Henrik, the first baseman at the time, came over and said to me, uh, he says, uh, he called me Eddie at the time. That was my, Ed. he says Eddie, this is the first base coach. He was calling all the pitches, and I had no idea why. Well, why. But anyhow, the next day, um, Jim Turner and Eddie Lopat got a hold of me, we went down to the bullpen, and they found out uh, no, right away what it was. I was twisting, I was turning my wrist uh, uh, especially in a stretch, I'd turn my mm-hmm. wrist when I was going to throw a curve, and I'd keep my wrist flat against my stomach when I was going to throw a fastball. and I, It was quite easy to pick up, so they we straightened that out right away. Welcome to the big leagues. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the big leagues. And I,
1: I guess they weren't figuring out that stuff when you you pitched for the 34th Avenue Boys Club.
2: No, or even in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, in the minor leagues, you had usually a, a player uh, coaching first base, and the, the manager would coach third. Uh, there was no such thing as pitching coaches or you know, regular coaches, so I had no problem in the minor leagues, but it was something that was really, it was corrected real easily. And uh, Well, no...
1: obviously, you went 9-1 and one the rest of that season.
2: Yes, yeah, I would. Yeah, I won my first nine games, and uh, I felt bad. The one loss, I, I mean, it was my loss, but I blew a save for Eddie Lopat in the ninth inning in Philadelphia. I, uh, I was, it was 3-2, and uh, somebody hit a home run off me with a man on, and uh, that was my first loss, but I, I felt worse about losing the mm-hmm. game for Eddie Lopez who you know was one of the veteran pitchers with the team.
1: Did you find yourself in 1950 a little bit pinching yourself at night saying, "Boy, this is this is going real well and Oh, th- yeah, This I is would, everything you know, I hoped it would
2: be." I mean we we still lived in a story at the time and you know all my buddies that I played Sam on <laughs> with were coming <laughs> to the games and I mean I really got a kick out of it and I think I think we had 70 we counted 73 of my friends that I grew up with uh went to the world series game in 1950 that i
1: pitched and that was the clinching game was it not that was the
2: final game against the philadelphia
1: phillies yes i mean it's really amazing you think about it your first year in the majors not only are you playing with the yankee team that's got joe dimaggio mickey would come next year i know that Mm -hmm. but you're looking around and you're pitching a deciding game in a world series and a lot of guys don't get that opportunity for entire careers and then some
2: well, I, I wouldn't. We 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 would, we, would, we won four straight, mm-hmm. so it really wasn't that much pressure on me. But <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I really I wasn't. You know, I never was nervous going out to pitch. About an hour before the game, I'd be a little uh, itchy to get out there and get the game started. But once I got out the mound, I was you know pretty relaxed and did you know exactly what I wanted to do.
1: I'd have to ask you about 1961. You go 25-4, and you win the Cy Young, you win two World Series games, and certainly what's most memorable is the the home run race that year. How how much, it's 40-plus years now, but etched in your memory, I mean, do you remember details about that season in terms of what Mickey and Roger were doing?
2: Oh, yeah, and then then that movie came out, 61, which (laughs) reminded me a lot more. But it was a great season. Uh, I mean, I kind of liked it because the press, you know, Ordinarily, if I was having that kind of year and there's nothing else going on with the team, you know, like there was no home run race, mm-hmm. the press would have been after me a lot with interviews and meeting after every game. But with Roger and Mickey, you know, fighting for that home run thing, uh, the press sort of left me alone, and it was kind of nice. I enjoyed it.
1: Ralph Halk did something a little different that year. Didn't you pitch more? that year in terms of starts and, and actual games that you went out there
2: right i read i met roger uh, ralph at, he'd just become manager i met him at madison square garden at a basketball game and he he asked me then he said how'd you like to try and pitch every fourth day game and i said i'd love it <laughs> because I, I really didn't like sitting in the dugout mm-hmm. watching games all the time if i wasn't involved in them and we tried it and johnny sane had come over as our new pitching coach and he he had done it quite a bit with Warren Spawn, you know, right. and remember Spawn saying in the day of rain
1: and things like that. Well, Bird, you know what Lou Burdett once told me? He, he, the the spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain? Lou Burdett's was, um, what did he say, spawn and Burdett better yet. Because <laughs> Lou thought, and, and Lou was a heck of a pitcher. Oh, he's great.
2: In fact, he was my roommate at Kansas City when, oh, really? I, when I got called up.
1: Well, he had one of the great World Series all times for a pitcher Oh, in 57, yeah, like, I guess 19, it was. Uh,
2: 1967, right. He won three games, and he was unhittable. (laughs) I was sorry Sorry that we lost him in the trade, especially when he'd been my roommate in the minor league. I didn't
1: know that. Yeah. Um, One of the other things, too, you mentioned the movie 61. Pretty accurate in terms of what was going on. I mean, could you sense, I, I spoke to Mrs. Mantle yesterday, and she really does believe that in 61, Yankee fans embraced Mickey like never before because he was the homegrown guy, and... It's amazing. He won a triple crown in '56. He was an MVP a couple of times, but it almost took that home run race to have right. Yankee fans look up and say, "Holy cow, this guy is one of us!" And yeah, he's pretty they, good.
2: They did, and the fans got on Roger a little bit, but I think the, move, the movie overplayed it mm-hmm. quite a bit. The fans weren't—I mean, they were—they were, you know, on him once in a while, but it was nothing compared to what the movies, you know, made it out to be. the you know, it, and then you know when he got closer to the record, I think the fans were really pulling for. You know, they'd rather one had Mickey do it. But right. When they saw Mickey got hurt at the end of the year, I think they really all, uh, you know, went went along with Roger, and they they really liked him.
1: Well, thank God it was a Yankee is probably what they ended up thinking. Exactly. Instead of an Oriole or somebody else, or <laughs> Ted Williams doing this to him. Right. Um, we mentioned Billy Martin before. True or false? Did he hit a home run off you after he was traded and you were pitching against him for the first time?
2: Yeah, he was traded to Kansas City, and we had a big we had a big lead, and I, I didn't I didn't do this, about the only time I ever done it, uh, we, we went in like eight or eight to one or something like that in, in the stadium, and I threw a big slow curve to him, and he took it for, it and, I, said, and I, I just hollered in the same thing. In other words, I was going to throw <laughs> the same pitch again. And he believed me, and he hit it down the left field line for a home run. And Casey Stengel, I think, might have heard me from the <laughs> dugout, and he got a little annoyed at me doing that. But he, he kind of—he he loved Billy, so I don't—I don't deep down in his heart, I don't think he minded me letting uh, letting Billy know what was coming.
1: Now, finish the story. Did you uh, did you drill him the next time up?
2: Oh, no, I, yeah, I did, but it wasn't one that I was really trying to hit him. Right. I, just, I threw one behind his head, <laughs> noticed no chance of was going to hit him.
1: Now, you you know, everybody knows about the Yogiisms, but I read a quote, and, and I don't know if you said this or not, but I have seen it's attributed to you, uh, about the spitter, about, well, you know. No, I didn't. I, I, I tried
2: to learn how to throw a spitter, but I didn't have much luck. I couldn't control it, and uh, so it— you know, everybody you know thought I cheated, and
1: well, that's perfect, isn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, it really helps when they thought I was cheating, <laughs> but I I really wasn't.
1: We we tell Greg Maddox all the time. You know, my partner on the air thinks that he cheats, and I said it's the greatest thing a pitcher could have going for him out to the mound every day.
2: Oh, I I, I watch him very closely. I don't if he's cheating. He's doing a great job of hiding it.
1: Yeah, and again, let let a couple of guys think that he's cheating. I would imagine life gets a little bit easier for a pitcher uh, yeah, at that point.
2: The way he pitches, he doesn't really, you know, he's got such great control and change of speeds. Uh, he's just a great pitcher. You're,
1: you're still a big baseball fan, I know.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I follow the Yankees. I, yeah, I follow baseball very closely.
1: Do you enjoy your time in spring training, working with uh, with the Yankees and going around yeah, camp? Yeah, and...
2: I, I went for, you know, this year I only went for 10 days over mm-hmm. to Tampa, but I enjoyed every day of it. Yogi came this year, and it, it was fun, you know, just seeing the young players and, They'd ask you a few things. The older pitchers don't, you know, we don't even bother with, you know, what, what, what can you teach uh, Clemens and Pettit and Messina and David Wells? So How inter- much you can teach those Is it guys. interesting
1: to you, you know, Tom Glavin just met Sandy Koufax again this spring training, and he got such a kick out of that. And I'm assuming, do you, are you aware of when a guy, even a major league player or a pitcher, just says, man, I was just talking to Whitey Ford, or I am talking no. to Whitey Ford?
2: I. I don't know. I, didn't get, I don't get that impression when I'm with the Yankees. I mean, they're all great guys on the team, and they, they treat me nice. And, uh, you know, if they, they, if they want to ask me something, they know they can come over and, you know, talk about it or, you know, anything to do with pitching. I'm glad to, you know, help them if I can.
1: Nineteen seventy-four, you going to the Hall of Fame. How how amazing was it? You go in with Mickey, and and I'd imagine as great an honor as it is, it probably got better because it was Mickey and you at the same time.
2: That was great. I I was a little disappointed I didn't get in my first year, and uh, I just I you know I missed by not not too many votes. But
1: did anybody ever explain? And I'm sorry, we'll continue with seventy-four in a second. But Joe DiMaggio didn't get in his first year. You didn't I get didn't. in their first year, and, and is that just a Yankee backlash, or is there something? <laughs> I think
2: so. How I is that think possible? Some, you know, I think two writers can vote from each town or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it works. There's about 400 votes, though. But I, I said, you know, and I wasn't a guy that worried about my record. But, you know, after I didn't get in, I, I looked at my record, and I looked at some of the records of guys in the Hall of Fame, and I said, geez, something's wrong here. <laughs> but it worked out great because I never, at the time, I wasn't thinking next year Mickey's eligible right. for it. and. Uh, sure enough, we both got in the same year, which was just perfect for me, and I know Mickey
1: loved it. So 236 and 106 with a 275 ERA. If that's not first ballot Hall of Fame, <laughs> I, I've never seen first ballot Hall of Fame. You, you're the only Yankee pitcher, by the way, to have his number retired, correct?
2: Uh, so far, yeah, but I, I got a feeling we got some pitches. It's going to happen, to in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. How
1: big a thrill was that for you?
2: Oh, that was so exciting. Uh, we were at... Uh, at Chase Stadium that year we were playing, you know, when the Yankee Stadium was being refurbished right. in nineteen, uh, the, the old-timers game in 1974, the, you know, everybody knew I was going to go into the Hall of Fame, and the Yankees retired my number, and that was uh, quite a thrill. Can,
1: can I ask in a strange way, I know the Hall of Fame is bigger, more grandiose, but to be a Yankee and to have that honor come about, is it comparable to the Hall of Fame itself?
2: Yeah, the Hall of Fame, you know, that's just something you, you don't even think you're ever going to, you know, make. But uh, uh, when we got in, I mean, I was so excited. I'd never been up there. Uh, I was nervous. I, mean, I never was nervous pitching, but I was very nervous with my speech that. That day, uh, and uh, Mickey went out with my kids and his kids, and sat up drinking beer all night. And he made the best speech I ever heard, without even <laughs> you know preparing for it. And I, <laughs> I wrote my speech out, and it was terrible.
1: <laughs> so you don't think you did well that day?
2: No, no my speech was awful. <laughs> I, my, I remembered at least I rem- remembered to mention everybody in my family, right? Right. Uh, Cool Papa Bill, who was, got inducted with us, mm-hmm. he uh, he introduced everybody in his family and forgot his wife. And she, we happened to ride back in a car with him from the ceremonies, <laughs> and his wife was hollering at him for the whole trip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Were you there with uh, Bill Mazeroski last year? Yes, I was. Uh, what did you think of that moment? I mean, well, I my I, wife even was moved, and it was the shortest speech in the history of the Hall I of Fame know, induction. I
2: felt sorry. For, I mean. We all kind of knew it was going to happen. People told us, you know, they said, oh, I don't know if Maz is going to get through his speech or not. But, uh, you know, the people understood. He just uh, was so tickled
1: at what happened. Well, you you certainly know about uh, one of the reasons he's in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, he's one of the greatest defensive second basemen ever. Right. But the home run in 1960, Yogi had maybe the best view of what happened at the end of that play. But obviously, being a part of that Yankee team, Mrs. Mantle told me Mickey cried all the way home after you guys lost that World Series. It's
2: the first time, yeah. First time I ever seen Mickey cry in a, in a dressing room after the game he was we were really upset you know i just you know we outscored them like 50 to 30 or something mm-hmm. like that i think it was
1: actually bigger than that
2: maybe maybe it was and uh you know we just that, that ball took a bad hop and hit tony Kubek in the throat right and, you know that allowed them to score a couple three or four more runs and uh but, you know, they they won the pennant in the National League, and they beat us in the World Series, and that's, that's all that counts.
1: Well, last thing for Whitey Ford, Mr. Ford, again, a great pleasure. Did you, want to, a, you
2: didn't want to mention my, my book, well,
1: did you? I, that's what I actually want to talk about now, because you, oh, want okay. talk, <laughs> you want to talk about a daunting task. I mean, you actually put together a book where you try to pick, or you do pick, the five greatest Yankees at each position. Now, a lot of people might say if you're a Brewers fan or a— an Angels fan well okay that should be fairly easy but this is the Yankees I know Th- this it, was work it
2: you know we had written two books before one called Mickey and Whitey yep. and then another one Slick about 12-15 years ago but that was just a guy interviewing us and you know asking us stories and all that but this one we really had to do a lot of work we had to check on some old-time players that we weren't sure of that you know what kind of records they had and
1: uh, was there one selection that you were even surprised by at the end when when the book was done that you even looked and said boy I didn't think I'd go that way i uh, I
2: think probably uh, well Tony lazari you know um, we found what we did with him Frank crossetti was you know who recently passed away mm-hmm. Frank I Frank I called him and out in Stockton California we, we've we stayed very close friends even after he got out of baseball, and I, I just talked and talked about, it. and they made him tell me as much about Lazari as he could, and Joe Gordon, another second baseman, and, and uh, Frank was uh, a real big help, you know, with the book, especially with the older players.
1: And you worked with Phil Pepe on this one, correct?
2: Yes, Pepe did a lot of research too, and uh, it's a
1: beautiful book, by the and way. It was you know,
2: fun. It's called Few and Chosen, which. Uh, Actually, Phil came up with that title, and I kind of liked it. And uh, it's, it's 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 a very good book. And I, when I when we first met Phil Rizzuto after the book came out, I was a little nervous. Uh-huh. I picked Derek Jeter, and Phil gave me a big smile and a hug. He says, he says you picked the right guy. He says that Derek's one of the best shortstops he's seen.
1: ever. is Phil Rizzuto one of the least Talked about he almost won two MVPs. I know he won one, but he almost won back-to-back MVPs, and that might be one of those. Well, how the heck could that happen with that Yankee team and what was going on in the late '40s and '50s? I,
2: I know, but when you know, when I joined the Yankees in '50, that's one of the years he was the MVP. Right. I mean, he just was—he was hitting good. Hit, I think he hit ten or fifteen home runs, which was very unusual for him. And stole bases, and uh, you know, knocked in runs. He just had a ter- tremendous year, and plus, he was a You know, a great shortstop.
1: And isn't it amazing? Because Pee Wee Reese and Phil Rosito are linked. The three center fielders in New York are linked. And then it was you, Don Newcomb, uh, you know, the guys who were pitching in New York, even not being teammates, it seems that if you mention one name, somebody else will pop up.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I really don't have an answer for that, but uh, it does. You know, you forget a lot of the players from the past, you know. and then all of a sudden, somebody will mention the name. Oh boy! And then you'll remember something exciting
1: that happened right. with that guy. Well, think about it. I mean, you pitched against Warren Spahn, Sandy Koufax, Don Newcombe, all in World Series. You pitched against Ted Williams, obviously, yeah. a number of times. And and the people that you played with—Joe DiMaggio, to Mickey Mantle, to Yogi Berra, to Roger Marison. and right. I mean, it's it is mind-boggling, is it not? When you think about the caliber of players that you were around and Oh, saw. exactly. And you
2: know, you didn't feel it at the time. Right. But then all of a sudden, all these guys are in the Hall of Fame <laughs> with you years later. <laughs> And probably the greatest thrill I've ever gotten recently was a few years ago. Ted Williams was on uh, uh, they on a Met game. But, you know, they had a doubleheader, mm-hmm. and uh, they had him up in a booth. And they were it was Tom Seaver and uh, I think Fran Healy and Ralph Kaina. And they hit one, Seaver, somebody said to uh, him uh, uh, to Ted, who, "Who was the toughest pitcher you ever had to hit against?" And uh, Ted says. Whitey Ford and Hoyt Wilhelm, and I got such a kick out of hearing him say that. You know, I know I had good luck against them, but he was, he was one of the few. I mean, I just thought he was the greatest hitter of all time. So
1: that's about as thrilling, even that many years later, to hear it come out of his mouth.
2: Oh yeah, this was like in nineteen, I mean, like nineteen ninety nine or right. two thousand, that he said it. And,
1: like, and Will, Willie Mays actually uh, had a little fun with you, though, didn't he? He did. He really he did. <laughs> <laughs> even games I won against.
2: The, the, San Francisco Giants in a World Series. I'd look at an old score card, a, a book or something. Will he get his three for four or two for three? And, <laughs> and we've had, we've had a lot of fun with that over the years.
1: Well, I will tell you, I have the book, and and it's not only a nice enjoyable read, but it's a it's a, a pretty book. There are a lot of mm-hmm. pictures, obviously, and a lot of things that make it a conversation piece besides the text. And last thing for you, I spoke to Mr. Rizzuto last year, and we spoke at length, uh, much like this. And one of the things that we talked about at the very end is, I'd asked him, and and I find, I enjoy asking players from your era, do you actually ever dream where you're young again, or you're pitching, or, you know, you're nervous, you can't find your glove? I mean, do you have baseball-related dreams?
2: Uh, no. Not quite. I, uh, I, I no, I really don't. I just often when I see games now, I said, "Boy, I, I'd just like to pitch one more game and see, <laughs> you know, if these hitters are as good as they were, you know, 40 years mm-hmm. ago or something like that." But you but,
1: don't have those moments where you dream and you're young again, and it's and it's a, a 55 World Series or a 56 World Series against the Dodgers. Or... No,
2: I've gone over them, but you know, the, 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 the ones that were played, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of different things that happened, but. No, it doesn't. Uh, uh, it doesn't really affect me that way. D-
1: did you retire at the right time? You talked about maybe wanting one more shot at today's guys, but when you retired, no, did you I- know
2: I, I might have been a year late retiring? But uh, I had, you know, a lot of physical problems mm-hmm. with my arm. But uh, the only thing when I looked, Tommy John, when I was with Tommy John last night, mm-hmm. out of Turner Stadium, in fact, and he he said he, he reminded me. He says you know. The very, last, the very last game you won in the big leagues was against me in Chicago. You beat me two to nothing. And he says, about two weeks later, you retired from baseball. <laughs> and I couldn't understand it. I, and I said, me either, Tony. He said, my, I think my my record was like two and four, but my earned run average was like 150 or 170.
1: Now, did you have Sandy Colfax-type trouble? And when I say that, just the arm just wasn't going to let you go anymore?
2: Well, I had a lot of circulation problems earlier, which I were corrected. And then all of a sudden now, I'm 38, 39 years right. old, and my elbow kicks up, and I said, well, I'm not about to start getting my elbow operated and on. And the Yankees uh,
1: weren't very good then.
2: I wasn't making much money. I mean, I, I was the highest-paid player in the, pitcher on the Yankees. I was making $78,000, and pro- it probably was one of the highest in the early 60s. I mm-hmm. think I was probably the highest-paid pitcher in the, in the American League anyhow. And I said, I'm not saving any money. I said, I'm not going to be able to retire, so I might as well get out of baseball and get a job and take care of the family.
1: You did coach a little bit, though.
2: Just that, yeah. One year yeah. I went back and coached first, and uh, not enjoyable. Really did enjoy it. Yeah, Mickey. Mickey like, said
1: the same thing, didn't he? It wasn't really what he'd hoped it would be. No,
2: I. You know, I just didn't like the road trips, right. and I wasn't involved in the games except coaching first, and. You know, first base coach, you don't have to be. Not taken away from any other <laughs> coaches, but, you know, just say, don't get picked off right. or something like that. Yeah, watch his move. exciting.
1: Get a good look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and then later on, I went back. Sign Runner asked me to come back right. in 74 to be the pitching coach, yep. so I. I did that for a year and a half, and uh, then I got
1: out of it. Last thing, Mr. Ford, you know, when you were done, right after you, you know, obviously the last couple of years, the Yankees were not a very good baseball team. How disheartening is that? You know, it's you and Mickey, and you guys are still there, 66, 67, and yeah. you could see it's not necessarily going to be what it was. Um, when you had had so much success, is it really tough for to go to the ballpark when things aren't going as well?
2: It was, yes. And, and I could see the team starting to go down the. Uh, Roger, you know, wanted to leave the club. He right. went to St. Louis, uh, Roger Maris, and then Elson Howard was starting to uh, not do too well, and mm-hmm. he got traded to Boston, and I could see Mickey slowing down. And I know Mickey wished he had quit a year or two earlier right. than he did, and uh, I felt the same way. I, I, I think I made it stayed around maybe one year too much, but uh, it was tough but I, 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 just to see the team... Uh, start slowing down, ending up in, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh place. It was no fun at
1: all. Well, it's just not the place the Yankees were supposed to be. Not at all. Yeah. Last thing, and again, one other thing I talked about with Mr. Rizzuto is he had said the thing that he misses the most as he's gotten a little bit older is something will happen. He'll see a game or he'll be watching TV and he'll see an old clip, and he'll notice that maybe people in the clip have passed away. And he Mm -hmm. had said, you know, the ability to pick up a phone and just call Mickey or to just call Billy or to just call somebody – it's not there and he said that's maybe as sad as anything i know and phil, <laughs> phil
2: unfortunately lost a lot of close friends george sternweiss was one of his best mm-hmm. friends on the team uh, got killed on a plane a, a train you know going back to jersey uh, and then and you know we it just seems every i mean even an, an older man like frank crusetti we right. lost him a few months ago a you year know, i felt bad but Uh, it's a shame, and then, you know, losing Mickey and Billy uh, was just uh, terrible at the time, and it still is, I still miss them both very
1: much. But you're doing well, I understand.
2: Yeah, I had a scare a few years ago, and uh, I didn't think I was going to be around much longer, but... Uh, I had some great doctors back in uh, New York, and uh, I'm feeling wonderful now. Well, good
1: for you. Congratulations on all that. I know you're in Atlanta right now, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thoroughly enjoyed the autobiography and spending this time with you, and my dad has said it. He had this is a Dodger fan, by the way, sir. <laughs> Willie Mays was the best player you ever saw. Mickey Mantle could have been the best player if not for the injuries. Right. And he saw Sandy Koufax in his day, but he said over a longer period of time, Whitey Ford was one of those guys that as a fan, even as a Brooklyn fan, you'd say, oh, yeah, I'd give him the baseball to try to win that game <laughs> I for wouldn't. me. That's very nice. And that's, that's pretty big coming from a Dodger fan.
2: Well, that's great. I, I love to hear those things.
1: Well, Mr. Ford, again, I appreciate your time. Enjoy your stay here in town, and we look forward to maybe catching up with you again somewhere down the road. Uh, thank you so much much. Have a great day. Thank right, you, too. Thank you.
0: A native New Yorker. He's been a Yankee hero for many years. In five pitching categories, he leads all Yankee pitchers. He still wears the pinstripes as a spring training coach. Let's meet and greet an all-time Yankee great, a member of the Hall of Fame, Ed Whitey Ford. I was a Yankee fan, I guess, since I was five or six years old. And when I was 21 years old, I'd be playing with DiMaggio and Barrett against guys like Stan usual, Roy Campanella. It's uh, just something I can't, uh, phantom. It's just been great. And it's hard to keep Reggie quiet too yeah. long. Five minutes later, he says, Whitey, could I have hit you? So I don't answer him. What's the reaction? <laughs> you don't think I could have hit you? I says, Reggie, let me tell you something. Ted Williams hit 215 off me lifetime. What the hell chance would you
1: make
0: <laughs> Reggie, shut up for 30 minutes. People's always asking me uh, about Casey. He said, uh, you know, when you always read about Stingleese, you know, people couldn't understand him or anything, you know. I never will forget this one time. We'd lost about four straight games or something, and he called a clubhouse meeting. He looked right at me and Billy and White and he said, and I'll tell you something else. Some of you guys are getting whiskey slick. <laughs> Nobody had ever heard that expression before, but everybody knows who they's talking to, you know. From the time that Casey had that clubhouse meeting and said, called us whiskey, that we was getting whiskey slick, everybody started calling me and Whitey both slick, and we've called each
1: other slick ever since then. I did it.